Maybe it's the anonymity of social media that has allowed people to publicly expose their most base thoughts and opinions at the drop of a hat, but it's definitely made me recede into the background even more than usual. What little faith I have in people has been lost piecemeal with every ignorant comment lobbed through the internets. The scariest part is day-to-day -day interaction, whether it be standing in line at the supermarket or eavesdropping in a cafe, hardly ever yields similar comments. It makes me wonder how much of this hate and viciousness brims underneath the surface, and if we're all just one hair trigger away from letting the vitriol spew out like a fire hose of vilification. One needs reassurance. One needs to recharge their batteries every once in a while and not give up hope. For me, it's reconnecting with people who motivate, stimulate, kindle, make me laugh, and are a general all-around great hang. Luckily, I've been fortunate enough to have a few of these types of people in my life. Some where we get together and laugh our asses off over the stupidest shit, and some where all we do is exchange tips on new bands, new movies, new books, and some where you just want to listen to their every word, drinking it up like a tall elixir of inspiration. I met Barrett Martin almost two years ago when his band The Walking Papers took part in the Uproar Festival across America with our band, and many more, like Allison Chains, Jane's Addiction, Middle Class Rut, and the Dead Daisies. It was through our previous touring with Duff McKagan, Walking Paper's bass player, that allowed our two camps to quickly befriend each other, quicker than usual, and the short time one spends sharing a meal with another eventually became ours. And for someone who doesn't really socialize too much outside of our band's closed circle of band and crew, I was pleasantly surprised to do so with Barrett. Our talks eventually distilled into podcast episodes number 56 and 65. Aside from drumming in the Screaming Trees, Tuatara, Mad Season, and of course, The Walking Papers, Barrett also holds a master's degree in anthropology and linguistics and teaches at Antioch University and has taught at New York University, Occidental College, Emory University, the University of Georgia, the University of Alaska, and the University of New Mexico. Most recently, and one of the reasons that prompted this podcast episode, was his recent recording with the great bluesman Cedell Davis on his new album, Last Man Standing. Having put out Cedell's 2002 album, When Lightning Struck the Pine, also with his Tuatara bandmate Peter Buck on Barrett's Sunyata record label, now, over 12 years later, Seidel is back, 89 years young, and arguably more popular and virile than ever. The recording is the proof. It's always great to talk to Barrett. Of all the episodes I've done, his two appearances on the podcast yielded the most comments from friends, some who I didn't even know listened to the podcast. It's complimentary, but a testament to Barrett's allure and distinction. There is a quiet club with this podcast, where three appearances automatically enlists you into what is known as the Black Coffee Brigade. Members include Brendan Canning, who was this podcast's first guest on episode number 10, and went on to appear on episodes number 29, number 50, and number 79. 
Wade McNeil of Alexis on Fire, and Gallows is a member, as is JC from our band, as is Ole, our webmaster. Duff McKagan, also from The Walking Papers and Guns N' Roses, is a member, and Damian Abraham, singer of Fucked Up, who has been on this podcast more than any other guest. Now, on the eve of our 100th episode, Barrett Martin slides in to become the newest member of the Black Coffee Brigade. So congratulations to Barrett. Thank you as well to Blue Mic Microphones and Skull Candy Headphones for supporting the podcast. Thanks to Chino Locos for making fish burritos in here in Toronto and stuffing them with chow mein noodles. And thanks to you for listening to the podcast. So, on with the podcast. Here is episode number 99. We've almost made it to 100. With Barrett Martin. And it starts now. The Tango Joe's podcast is the best around. They play the kiddies, take us, go out, tell them for free. I'm so glad I like to sometimes. Jimmy, you're from fucked up. Stop playing hang down, down. I feel it's absolutely compulsory for you to listen to the Danko Jones podcast. Many times, Liz and I camped out in front of our Fisher 500 hi-fi receiver, hanging on Danko's every word. It's what we used for inspiration when we both starred in Under Milkwood. We even got Peter hooked by the end of the production. Peter O'Toole, that is. <laughs> I implore you to go now and listen to Danko expound on subject matter most of us don't even think twice about. Listen to him. Turn anything into podcast gold. It's simply fantastic. Sometimes Danko goes on and on about Glenn Danzig. The guy just loves Glenn Danzig. And I love that kind of passion, and, and that's why I love listening to Danko speak. Well, truth be told, I love that Danzig song, Mother. I like that too. Thank God for the Danko Jones podcast. And I say the Danko Jones podcast makes me feel alright. The Danko Jones podcast makes me feel alright. Number one in the world, one in the world, it makes me feel alright. Hey, it's Barrett. Hey Barrett, how you doing? I'm I'm doing great. It's really good to talk with you again because it's been at least over a year and maybe more than that because I can't remember the last time we talked. Year and a half, closing in on two years now. Man, I cannot believe how fast the time has flown. That's crazy. Yeah, and you know we have this thing on the podcast where if you're you're on three times. Yeah. You are part of this club. Really? And this is your third time. You know, I remember you saying something about that. Because um, I think I think you've had Duff on three times and a couple other people that, that I respect a lot. The last person who was in, inducted into this Black Coffee Brigade, this little club of ours, uh, was Duff. And wow. that was two years ago. Okay, I'm I'm deeply honored. Yeah, thank you. So I I have to send you a patch. Yes. <laughs> Everybody gets a patch. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been very busy. Yes, I have. And last time we spoke on the podcast, it was to do with um, ayahuasca. That's right. It's interesting you'd bring that one up because I'm literally the last few days I've been rewriting the chapter in my book, which will be my first book 
about my experience in the Peruvian Amazon doing ayahuasca ceremonies and learning about the songs of the Shipibo shamans. The Shipibo are the indigenous people that live in the the upper Peruvian Amazon, and those are the people that I worked with when I was doing my master's degree research. And But I also just have a, a deep love of those people and the way that they see the world. Now, this book, this is new. I haven't heard of this. Well, I haven't been talking about it very much. I, I guess, really, you'd be the first person that I'm publicly talking about it with. Um, it's a book that I've been working on for a few years. I guess technically you could say that I've been working on it for 20 years because it chronicles my travels around the world, um, not so much in my rock and roll career, but more when I would travel on my own or when I would take a detour and go uh study or live with an indigenous group and learn about their culture and their music and their spiritual views of the world. So uh, it's it starts with, uh, I mean, there are a couple chapters about rock and roll. I mean, I talk about the early Seattle music scene because that's where I came from and it kind of gives people a foundation of understanding who I am and where I come from, mm -hmm. you know, growing up in the Pacific Northwest and and being part of the that early uh, music movement in the late 80s and early 90s. But then I talk about everything from Aboriginal songlines in Australia to the Maori sea trails and how they navigated the Pacific Ocean and, and uh, colonizing, you know, most of the Pacific. I talk about Native American music and some of the, uh, the ceremonies and... Um, and the spiritual meanings behind them that I've participated in. Um, there's most of the book is actually about time that I spent in West Africa, in Senegal and Ghana, learning um, traditional African rhythms from a family of griots, which are the um, indigenous storytellers of West Africa. Okay. Uh, a little bit about being in Cuba in 1999 when Bill Clinton was still president, and he sent a bunch of musicians to Cuba to work with. <laughs> Cuban musicians. You mentioned that before. <clears throat> so I'm just kind of, I'm writing more in depth about those experiences. Um, Amazing. And then, and then Central America, Brazil, and then right now I'm working on that, uh, that chapter on the Peruvian Amazon and the, and the Shipibo and how they, how they see the world made of song. So and so I, I'm not sure when the book is going to come out, but it's it's getting close to being done, and we'll see uh, we'll see if I get a release date for it. So you've got a publishing company behind behind you? <clears throat> well, not yet. I have I've got some uh, literary agents and and uh, editors that are looking at it, and I also have you know my own record label as a as a as a viable you know. I release music and CDs. I, I suppose I could release release a book as well. Right. Uh, Start your own imprint. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's the, that's the great thing about the digital age is that we have all of these, these opportunities. You know, people can write a book, and write a manuscript or a screenplay and publish it, with, you know, without having to go through the old traditional channels. Um, 
yeah. but they have all options. So, well, it definitely sounds like an interesting read. I um, think so. <laughs> yeah, especially from your perspective and your background. Um, I think a lot of people. Uh, it's a it's a nice way to lead people into that world from, you know, your rock and roll start. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think another way to look at it is that music occupies every corner of the earth. You know, I mean, every culture has a way of expressing itself through music. It's kind of the one universal that, you know, it. I mean, there, there's a saying in ethnomusicology: there's no such thing as a universal in music because every form of music has different you know different forms of expression so the only universal is that everybody has music you know right. it's just so broad but i i think that i think music needs to be viewed more as a spiritual and um cultural expression rather than just a uh, a commodity which is what the western capitalist world tends to do you know, I mean, it's fine to sell music and, and make money. I mean, that's that's how I earn my living. But I also don't think that you should limit music to just that. It's it's so much more than that. And we just get conditioned to think of it as a product or a commodity to be bought rather than deep spiritual and cultural expression. It's a, it's a tight rope to walk, especially when you're in it. And you're putting out records, and you want to keep putting out records. Yeah, it's hard to not get caught into the whole numbers and the units and the all the shipments, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I j- we dealt Sorry. with that in the late '80s and early '90s. I mean, it, it, it's not that has never gone away. Um, but that was before the internet and the digital age and the ability to dispense music almost instantly around the globe. So that changes the financial parameters of it, but it also makes it more inclusive, you know, so that there's like one side of it is kind of falling away, but another side is emerging this ability to connect and reach people all over the world. Like I said, pretty instantly, Mm -hmm. or or at least they have access to it, you know, almost instantly. Yeah. Yeah. I I find, um, you know, when people ask me, like, oh, how many records did you sell of that album? I've I've never known. I still don't know how many records we've sold. I don't know anything about who bought what. I just know that we're still able to tour. That's yeah. it. Yeah. And there's still that. a deadline to um, submit a record. Right, right. Actually, um, good friend of mine who works in in music law she told me now this was about 10 years ago she said this i'm sure it's different and much higher uh today but she said that whatever you've sold or however many cds you've manufactured and shipped at least four times that many people have your album so in other words, for every CD that exists, at least four people have a copy of it, whether they have a, a CD copy or they burned it onto their computer. And uh, th- th- those numbers were from 10 years ago. So it yeah. could be much, much more than that at this point. So Yeah, you know, let them have it. Yeah. Just come to the show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Come to the show and experience the real thing live. Yeah. 
And that's one thing we've staked our our band name on and our reputation is the live show, so you you can't really download it. That's right. So we have that going for us. Well, and you know the the the, the thing about a live show, like what lately what I've been doing is I've been doing live shows with my instrumental band Tuatara. We just did a West Coast tour, and you know we're kind of like this kind of fusiony shamanic dance group you know it's kind of it's kind of jazz it's kind of electronic it's kind of it's got elements of rock but it it grooves really hard and it makes people dance and and they just kind of have this this great experience and i think i think what we have to remember is that a live show with real music real musicians real uh performance i mean that is as old as the the earliest shamanic ceremonies where the storyteller was leading the listeners on a journey and dancing and you know playing a drum and maybe there were other musicians playing with them and you're you're taking the audience you're captivating the audience and taking them on a journey so you can do that with a lot of different kinds of music you can do it with rock and roll you can do it with electronic music i mean really it's interesting to see the growth in electronic music and you know the the huge crowds of people that go to see a DJ. And it's, you know, you can, you can get into the debate about whether or not the DJs are even doing anything. I mean, lots of times they're just pushing buttons and just playing stuff that's already recorded. And that might be true, but the point being is that the audience is having this experience with the music. That, that's really the essential thing that's going on. And so whatever your form is, whether it's rock and roll or electronic or pop or hip hop or jazz or whatever it is, um, that I mean that is a that's an ancient ceremony. It's, right. it's it's timeless. It's just that it changes over the centuries and with technology and and becomes you know it expresses itself differently. Yeah, I think with a lot of the uh, criticism with you know the DJ culture, etc. It comes from musicians and, and they're looking at it from their perspective, judging everyone else. But everyone is there to experience that communal feeling. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, I like a lot of electronic music. I, I tend to like the more down tempo stuff. I guess you just call it, you know, kind of chill out music or or um uh, ambient music, things like that. I mean, you can really, you right. can create some beautiful textures with electronic sounds. Right. Uh, but I just think we have to be careful to not replace real musicianship and composition with computers and button pushing. You know, I mean, that that's a certain skill set, and it and it certainly has value, but it shouldn't replace, you know, the the other stuff. You know, it's, it's just one other kind of music. Yeah, I think musicians feel threatened by it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and and I can I can see why I I do. Um, but uh, I mean, there's also <laughs> you have to once you live long enough, you start to see that there are these trends and these patterns. Right now, electronic music is is having it, you know it's having a popular trend, but uh, you know, those people will get older and in 10 years or 20 years, they may not want to be going to gigantic concerts of electronic music. And there could be another form of music that emerges that takes its place. 
I mean, it's the same thing, you know, in the 1990s, the biggest shows in the world were rock and roll shows. Mm-hmm. And, um, and everybody went to see rock and roll because that's where, you know, you, that was your social life was the people that you met at these rock shows. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, rock is still, I mean, it's still a huge thing in the festival circuit. I mean, the biggest festivals in Europe and the United States are essentially rock festivals. They might have electronic musicians and DJs in in the lineup, but they're essentially rock festivals. Yeah, it's the way I see it is, you know, I like electronic music and hip hop and all that kind of stuff. But when I submerge myself in, in, in submerge myself in that world for a long enough period of time, when I finally go back to rock. It's kind of like when you've eaten fast food for a week and then you, your body just craves like fruits and vegetables. Yeah, yes. That's exactly how the feeling I get when I go back to rock. Yeah, yeah, because it's so organic and natural and visceral and muscular and it's made by the human mind and body. Like it's physical. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think, there, you know, you touched on a good metaphor there. You know, we spend a lot of time in front of a computer or looking at our smartphone, basically looking at a square box, usually sitting on our butts, and we can get very cerebral and mental, but not physical. Oh yeah. Uh, and there and there's all <laughs> kinds of studies now that say that people that sit at their jobs, you know, don't live as long as people that are on their feet or or at least moving around, you know, like mm-hmm. being being physical, because we are physical beings. Right. So um, I think that there's sort of like a, it's like in our DNA to, we want to move and dance and feel life in our body and certain kinds of music draw that out of us. Yeah. I mean, I sit in front of the computer all day long um, when I'm not on the road, even when I'm on the road. So I feel like the live show makes up for the whole day, hopefully. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, Tuatara, and yeah. you know, leading up to this discussion, I, I went back and I listened to some of the the two podcasts we did. And at the time when we were on tour together on the Uproar Festival, you mentioned that you were in the middle of working on a Tuatara album. That's so right. So that has since come out. Yeah, I, I guess I got to send that to you. I thought I forgot. It actually came out last at the end of last last summer so it's it's already been out for you know coming up on a year now and um, mm-hmm. we didn't really get to tour when it first came out because i was still on the road with walking papers and um, just didn't have time to add another band to the mix but we ended up making a 20 song double album it's called underworld and it's, it's kind of a shamanic album it's about you know this journey through the underworld um but it's kind of funny and tongue-in-cheek, you know, it doesn't take itself too seriously. The, the song titles, you know, have kind of funny names like Skeleton Get Down and, and, um, and uh, the, um, the Gremlin Chain Gang and, you know, things like that, you know, just sort of like tongue-in-cheek. But it's a really good groove and record, like it makes you want to dance. 
And and so I put this band together of about six other Seattle musicians that are they range from being, you know, like a virtuosic upright bass player to and you know Skerek, the the famous experimental saxophonist. He he's the leader of the horn section. Um, we've got a Senegalese percussionist. I'm playing drums. Um, there's keyboards and guitar and and a three three man horn section, and uh, it's really unique and very very different from anything that I've done before. Because like I said, it's not rock and roll. It's it's a mixture of electronics and jazz and just sort of a philosophy that we should groove no matter what. It's got to groove and it's got to make people dance. So, this is your yeah. this is your band with Peter Bach, right? Well, Peter and I started the band almost 20 years ago, but it started as a very different band. It, it's always been an instrumental band, but when Peter and I were doing it, uh, and Skerek was also a founding member, and also okay. Justin Harwood, who was the bassist in the band Luna, so okay. the the four of us started the band as a as this instrumental um, experimental like film soundtrack kind of band, and we've made seven albums now, and and it's been yeah this this is like uh, the 19th year, you know next year would be our 20 20 year anniversary, and we've just the albums have just evolved over time. They just just like a human being, you know they change and evolve, and. Um, so a lot of critics said that this this new album is probably the best record that we've ever done, and I, th I certainly think it's the most realized. Like it's a very focused and specific kind of record. Oh, that's very interesting. I really want to hear it. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll mail you a copy today for sure. So yeah, I gotta mail you ours as well. Okay, perfect, perfect. Yeah. So. When we when we last saw each other, you guys were in the middle of the walking papers cycle. Yeah. And I think I followed you guys where you were going to Europe. You toured with Alice and Chains there, wasn't it? Or uh, Monster Magnet? Well, we did. You know, we went to Europe, I think, six different times. Some some of them were just short little, like we'd just do some shows in the UK, which that's what we did with Alice and Chains. We We just did some opening dates in the UK. And then the last tour we did was last summer. We, we did a bunch of festivals and we opened some shows for Aerosmith. And then wow. we came, came back to the United States and we did some West Coast dates. And we kind of wrapped things up. Uh, I think our last show was in L.A. at the Whiskey A Go Go um, in November. And so um, what we did after that is we, we recorded our new album. It's done. It's, it's mixed and mastered. And uh, we're just trying to find a, a record label to put it out. Um, and also, you know, we needed to take a break. Everybody was, I mean, that was a lot. That was two years on the road, and it was a lot for us. Um, and we all have different things going on right now. You know, Duff has a new book that's just coming out, I think, next week. Mm -hmm. And um, I think Jeff is doing a solo record, and, and I'm working on this uh, Delta Blues project. Uh, which I can tell you about in a little bit. Um, oh, yeah. So we just realized that we needed to just pause, and you know, we'll find we'll find an appropriate label at some point, and uh, the second Walking Papers record will eventually come out. Well, it's interesting with Duff. He 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 goes back and forth between Loaded and then Walking Papers, right? Well, I think you know he did a couple Loaded shows. Um, they were doing like benefits and fundraisers. I, I don't think the band is totally active again. I think he's. I mean, maybe maybe he's going to do more shows, but 
but he um yeah he did have some shows with loaded but i think i think just two or three right okay so when we reconnected to do this podcast you 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 sent me uh the new cdl davis album that you're yeah. on yeah. last man standing that's right yeah i read the huff post um um article that you wrote giving me the complete background history of the project. Yeah. I heard the album. It's an amazing record. Yeah, it's pretty good. Recorded, you it, you recorded it in a church or a cathedral? Okay, yeah, the story, we recorded this uh, last summer. Um, it was it was right after I got back from the, the last Walking Papers tour. And uh, we recorded it in Water Valley, Mississippi at the, uh, the Fat Possum Recording Studio, which is actually in a house. But the house used to be the parsonage of a Methodist church, which uh-huh. the church okay. is still there and it still has a congregation. It's a tiny place. I mean, I, I don't think there's more than you know, a couple thousand people in Water Valley, Mississippi, but it's just a beautiful, enchanting place. I mean, the Delta is is just, it's, I've driven through there so many times, but every time, you know, it's a different experience. And uh, it, um, it really, really affected me as a musician and as a drummer to work with somebody who's 89, well, he's about to turn 89 in June, um, he and B.B. King are the same age and grew up within 100 miles of each other. And the story of C. Dell Davis's life, you know, everything that he went through from polio and, you know, yellow fever and being trampled and having his legs broken and being in a wheelchair for most of his life and still, be, you know, still being able to sing the, the greatest blues. Um, it just kind of changed how I thought about what it is to be a musician and, you know, what it really means to do this work, you know, when you're alive on earth, you know, and especially when you're somebody like Seidel who dedicated his entire life to it. So the album came out, it's it's still getting rave reviews. It's kind of building as, as we go. And now we're doing a documentary film. We've, uh, we filmed a bunch of footage in Mississippi, uh, you know, in the studio and and playing, you know, some live shows. And then now what we're doing is uh, on June 14th, we're doing a show here in Seattle at the Crocodile, which is, of course, the famous rock club of Seattle. And yes. I've, I'm the musical director, and I've put together a show that includes myself on drums, Peter Buck of R.E.M. on guitar, uh, Mike McCready of Pearl Jam on guitar, and then Van Connor from Screaming Trees, my old bandmate. He's going to play bass on some songs. Oh, nice! So we'll have the old Screaming Trees rhythm section on some songs. Uh, yeah. The uh, this amazing upright bass player from Tuatara, his name is Evan Flory Barnes. He's going to he's going to do some songs because we're going to do some acoustic blues. Um, and basically, I've got a revolving cast of you know, very well-known musicians and sort of unknown but up-and-coming musicians. So it's kind of a passing of the torch sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And we're we're basically showing the roots of the blues in rock and roll. And we're just doing it in Seattle because that's, you know, that's where I'm from. Uh, but also, you know, Peter Buck and I played on Seattle's previous album, which is called When Lightning Struck the Pine. 
right. we recorded back in 2002. So Peter and I have a have a long connection with Cedell, and uh, I, th- I think I think we're doing something good with this because we're we're really showing the importance of the men and women that you know created the blues because it's it is the foundational music for everything for jazz rock and roll r&b you know country blues and and even hip-hop you know it all, it all goes back to the blues and it all goes back to the mississippi delta well you doing it at fat possum hq i mean that's a label that's really oh yeah yeah kept the blues alive with with all the releases whether it's rl burnside uh, junior kimbrough yeah, I That's love all that stuff. I mean, they they put out some of the early C. Dell Davis records. I mean, they they kind of brought C. Dell back out of out of obscurity, and and I, I'm friends with Bruce Watson, the president of the label, and so he's he's actually been very helpful in um in, you know kind of helping promote this. So, but sometimes you know you just sort of feel like you have an obligation to to shine a spotlight on somebody that maybe didn't get it when they. Did, you know, when they deserved it. And so now we have a chance to do that. Yeah, it's interesting because the that album you mentioned, uh, When the Lightning st- Struck the Pine, that yeah. was in 02, right? Yeah, that was that was done in uh, 2002. And um, it was it was produced by Joe Cripps, who is a percussionist down in Texas. And um, and so so he asked me to put a band together and I, I basically just got two Atara, you know, I got myself, Peter Buck, mm-hmm. Scott, Scott McCoy, um, Alex Vealy, who's our keyboard player. And, and we were essentially the backup band for Cedell. Um, and uh, we, we basically made the record in just a few days, two or three days, I think, of, you know, principal recording in Denton, Texas, in, in a bar. And we, we rented out the bar so that we could record during the day when nobody was there. But then we would also... You know, bring in the audience at night and and record in front of an audience. I think we did that two nights in a row. It was like a Friday and a Saturday night, or maybe a Saturday and a Sunday night, something like that. Mm-hmm. So the album has has both, um, you know, both this uh, you know studio quality and a live quality. It's 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 pretty neat. Um, now in O two, he was. 78 late 70s I think yeah I think it would yeah he would have been oh two, yeah he would have been you know in his mid 70s 75 76 I think now from you know b- between the age of 26 and 36 yeah there's not much of a physical change really but from 78 to early 80 uh early late 80s was there a huge difference that you noticed with Cedell, like in terms of making this record with him? Well, yeah, he's, uh, he's a bit more, well, for one thing, you know, he can't play slide guitar anymore. He, um, he had a mild stroke in 2005 and it just impaired his, his, uh, his ability to play slide guitar. So now he just sings. Um, but in some ways, you know, he's, he's got such a, such a rich voice. I mean, it's a, it's. Uh, I think yeah. the way I wrote it in those liner notes, it's it's as rich as the soil of the of the Mississippi Delta. I mean, it's just got so much life and history in his voice uh, that he just focuses on singing now. 
and of course he's still in a wheelchair, but um, it's it's pretty extraordinary because uh, I, I I did you know a handful of shows with him down in the Delta where um, where I played drums and and you know he's got kind of a new band that takes care of him and tours with him. The he's father's been, son. Yeah, the yeah uh, Greg and Zach Bins, and then the harmonica player is a uh, registered nurse who you know looks after Cedell when they're on the road. Oh, and they've, they've really? already done two tours of Europe like this. I mean, Seidel's actually having more success now than he's ever had at any point in his life. So it's uh, it's pretty amazing, you know, to sit behind him on the drum set and just lay down these beats, and then he just sings. Yes. That's the one thing about that marks the record is is the timbre of his voice is so... You know he's lived uh, a life. Yeah. That yeah. cuts through anything. That cuts through all the lyrics, the songs, the music. It just cuts through everything. Yeah, yeah. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. You you can't put that on. You, you no matter how, how great of an impressionist you are. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking that. I mean, we were just talking about electronic music and how you know how perfect and clean and digital it is, and this is like the exact opposite of it. It's totally. <laughs> human and organic and it's full of mistakes and flaws and imperfections and but that's the way life is life is full of i mean this music represents what life actually is life is full of mistakes and regrets and missteps and you learn and you deepen yourself as you go and uh i really don't know anybody other than cdell you know of that age who, who has that kind of wisdom and experience. You make a mention in the article, the, the introductions to the songs, and you compare it to kind of the Chicago 12-bar blues, very strict, standard, yeah. confined way of blues, where this just starts when it does. Yeah, I think, you know, when the blues moved upriver, initially to St. Louis and then on to Chicago, you know, it started to get real codified and, you know, we got this, you know, 12 bar, one, four, five chord progression, but that's not really how it is in the Delta. And, and I think it started very differently. You know, there are these, sometimes, you know, you never leave the one, you know, you just stay on the one and you don't go to any other chord changes. A lot of, a lot of Junior Kimbrough stuff is like that, mm-hmm. which, which is what, but he's such a melodic singer that, you don't realize that the chord progression never changed. It's just his voice and his emotion that changed. And uh, so when you when you play this old Delta music, you know, it kind of stops and twists and turns, and it, it kind of reminds me of a boxer. You know, it, 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 it turns on a dime and it, and it snaps around, and, you know, you have to, like, be real intuitive and fast and, and be able to switch like that. And um, so it's... It's, it's definitely music that keeps you on your toes. You'd think that it'd be really simple, and in one, some ways it is, but on the mm-hmm. other side of it, you have to be very intuitive and awake to play it. Um, another comparison that you made with the record is how you guys were making this, yeah, this kind of secular-type music within this church. Yeah. And how the two are necessary to be together, the the spiritual with, I don't know, the, 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 the earth or, or the, 
I don't yeah. know how to describe it, but well, it's kind of it's like the classic dichotomy of the um, the sacred and the profane. You know, you have the sacred liturgical music of the church, and then you have the quote profane music of the blues. You know, which started out as music of the brothels, and it was it was party music. You know, and and you know it still is party music in the sense that it makes people feel good. And so in some ways, the two musics are very similar. You know, religious music mm -hmm. makes people feel spiritual and whole and connected to God. And the blues, the reason why it's so influential in all forms of music is that when you have a song that's about pain and suffering, people actually like it because it reminds them that they're not alone in their pain and suffering. They're connected to other people that are going through the same thing. Now, and the lyrics can still have humor and lightheartedness, but maybe, you know, maybe there's still an underlying, you know, a general theme of, of pain and suffering that people connect to. Um, so that is also healing. You know, it's, it's all healing. I like, I like how you, you did compare it with the, um, the spiritual and, yes, the profane. To me, that is the essence of rock and roll. Where, um, kind of to paraphrase, where the gutter mixes with the stars. Yeah. That's the essence of rock and roll, to yeah. me. Yeah, in uh, Buddhism they call that the mud and the sky. Yeah. Both, both things are real in the sense that, you know, we experience both mud and we can see the sky. It's also an illusion, you know. It's not. It's it's just you know mo a molecular construct that we're existing in. Um, but but it represents you know the polarities of life, you know, the bottom and the top, you know, heaven and hell. Um, but out of mud comes life, you know, and and so you know you go far enough on to you know to each end of the continuum and you kind of come back to the same place. I think rock and roll is very much like that because it can be very cathartic and healing to express, you know, that kind of power through amplified music. I mean, that, that's what that's what I loved about rock and roll when I was a kid, and that's that was the music that was popular in the '70s and '80s. It was rock and roll, and uh, I mean, it 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 can take a whole lot of different forms, but I'm I'm in agreement with you, man. It's a it's healing. Now, are you going to tour with this, tour this album? Uh, well, with how much can he tour? Well, uh, you know, we're going to play some select shows. I mean, right now the only show we have is this June 14th show at the Crocodile with this kind of you know all-star backup band. And, mm -hmm. uh, I, I think there's talk of him going back to Europe. I don't know if I can do the European tour because of my schedule, but maybe I maybe I maybe I will be able to. It remains to be seen, but. Right now, we're kind of focusing on on documenting this concert and um, and this film. That that's kind of our main focus. Right. I and mean, when do you see? CL can't Sorry. tour that much. I mean, he can play a handful of shows and go to Europe for two weeks, but you know, he he is eighty nine years old and in a wheelchair, yeah. so there's there's a limit to what he can do. Yeah. Um, and when do you see this documentary being released? I don't know when it'll be released, but I know that they're they're already editing the footage we have, and then they'll 
they'll add in this, you know, this live performance footage. So I would think, you know, by the end of the year, they'll probably have something to present. But when it when when it's released, I don't know yet. Right. Hmm. Well, that's really exciting. Um, and now that you have the walking papers with a new album in the can, you're pretty much sitting on the cusp of a, a hell of a lot of work. I, it ahead could of you. be. It could be. It could, you know, I, the funny thing is, is I've been in this business for a long time and I've seen things, you know, you just never know. You never know what album is going to take off and when you'll be asked to tour or, or who's available to tour, you know? Yeah. Right, right now, I'm just kind of enjoying, like, I'm just in Seattle and I literally don't have a show on the calendar except for June 14th. I have nothing booked for the rest of the year. Nothing. And it's, so it's interesting to go from being on the road with your life planned six months ahead, and then suddenly you're at home and, and you don't have anything really planned. And it's kind of nice to just rest in that and, and just be able to kind of survey, the, the <laughs> survey your life and figure out, you know, what you're going to do next. So I, I'm spending a lot of time writing. You know, I'm working on some new essays for Huffington Post, and I'm working on my book. Well, you know, we have talked in the past about doing that band, remember? I do remember, so I'm, I'm <laughs> wondering when you might want to do that. <laughs> I know. Um, I am in the middle of where you were about last year. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I'm not sure when we can do it, but I would, uh, you know, I'm, I'm down. I, I love doing stuff like that. Let's do it, man. I mean, I'll I'll either come out to Toronto or you come out to Seattle, and you know, well, yeah, yeah, because you know we got to get Jack involved. So yeah, Jack and Dino. Yeah, actually, Jack, does Jack know? Uh, you know, I I can't. I think I I did mention this to him, but you know, I'm I'm working with Jack on this Cdell thing because not only do we have the show on June 14th, but the three or four days before that, we're in the studio recording all these old Delta songs with this kind of all-star backup band. So I got Jack to be the engineer on that. So, because oh, I mean, you can't do a project like this without Jack and Dino being involved. I think, I cannot remember why, but the three of us were, were all CC'd on a email thread yeah, two years ago. That's I right. I can't remember why. Um, I think we just <laughs> probably, you know, jump-started that idea of, of doing the power trio or something like that. I, Right. So, but yeah, we got to do that at some point. We just have to. Yeah, some point we this, this, something's got to be done. Yeah. Well, meeting him two years ago in Seattle, at the at the show was was pretty pretty cool and heavy for myself. Oh yeah, that's just right. Knowing... That was out at that was when we were out at the uh, the Columbia River Gorge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A big day for for me. I I had a blast. And I love Seattle. You know, I love all the Seattleites that I've met. It's kind of like batting a thousand f yeah. with Seattleites. Yeah. Yep. Well, Barrett, this has been great, man. Likewise. Great Thank way to catch up. Thank you, Danko. It's always a pleasure talking with you. And I know when the Walking Papers album comes out, we will our, our paths will cross. I'm sure they will. Thanks, man. Thank you, sir. <laughs> <laughs>